Uh, Well, our passage of scripture this morning comes from Luke chapter 19. Uh, I want to begin reading in verse 41. Um, You can follow along on the screens. You can click there to your digital Bibles. And if you prefer a Bible, there should be one somewhere in your neighborhood in the chair racks in front of you. Uh, So I encourage you to turn there, ending with verse 41 through the end of the chapter. Uh, It says this, uh, as he, that is Jesus, approached Jerusalem and saw the city, uh, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. And the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you, will encircle you and hem you in on every side. And they will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. And they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Verse 45. Then he entered the temple area and he began driving out those who were selling. It is written, he said uh, to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of robbers. Now every day he was preaching in the temple, but the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all of the people hung on his words. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Um, This passage is, is made up of what appears, at least on the surface, to be two very different parts. Uh, And what I want to focus on this morning is I want to focus on the cleansing of the temple. But in order to do that, uh, we must go back to verse 41 where we began. That these two kind of stories that seem divergent in all ways are actually very deeply connected. Uh, One of the center marks of Jesus' ministry, particularly as the Gospel of Luke tells it, is is that Jesus is busy going around uh, not just proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ, but also calling people to repentance. Uh, That is to say that the good news of Jesus Christ comes with a a call to action. And and very directly in the Gospel of Luke, for Jesus, this call to action is repentance. Now, you'll remember from a couple of weeks ago that repentance is a changing of mind, a changing of perspective, and then as a result, moving in a different direction. And so now, as we come to Jesus' final week... um, Jesus, having called them to repentance, having called people to repentance, now looks over the city of Jerusalem with tears, saying, if only you had known what would bring peace. And then, verse 42, having rejected peace, he goes on to tell and describe of the impending judgment. Now, let's take a deep dive right at the very beginning of the message, shall we? (laughs) And let's think about this for a moment. Uh, We often think of judgment, particularly when it comes to God's judgment. We often think of it as God taking action against someone or some group of people. Uh, We often think of of judgment almost in in punitive or punishment terms. That is, God is is angry, you did something wrong, and so now God comes in and takes action against you as a a punishment for that which you have done. I would want to submit to you and and invite you to consider the following idea. Uh, That judgment is not so much God acting angrily against someone. Nor is judgment calling on some army that God calls on for for them to do his bidding. But rather, I want us to invite invite you to consider the possibility of judgment as a facing of the consequences of sin. 
that sin has its own judgment built in. Uh, Some scholars have said it this way, we are not punished for our sins, we are punished by our sins. Allow that to sink in for a moment. (laughs) We're not so much punished for our sins as much as we are punished by our sins. Uh, And so in this particular passage, Jesus is in fact pronouncing a a, a judgment, but he's doing so with tears. And you almost sense that there's this theme of peace that's going on. And we've just come out of the story of the triumphal entry that we're going to look at next week. So we're kind of looking at it a little bit backwards. We're pulling a J.J. Abrams and doing non-linear storytelling, right? Some of you will get that. Uh, And so we're kind of looking at this story backwards, but we've just come from the triumphal entry when Jesus kind of does the whole like counter parade where he enters in on a a donkey instead of a war horse and all of this. And then he goes and he looks over Jerusalem and he talks about how they have rejected the way of peace and he pronounces judgment with tears. It's almost as if Jesus, while crying, sees that this city has rejected peace and then will face attack and ruin from enemies. Gandhi is often credited for saying, there is no way to peace. Peace is the way. (laughs) That is, if you reject that way, then be prepared to walk the road of judgment of a violent end. And so even though Jesus has been warning for judgment that that is impending, he's been calling people to repentance, as he looks over the city of Jerusalem and he says, if only you had known the way of peace, and if only you had known and recognized that it was God who has been coming to you, that God has arrived on the scene. As he pronounces those things, as he recognizes those things, he is brought to tears, and I'm just... I'm just utterly shook, shook, shaken to the core. I'll get my English right, I think. I'm utterly shaken to the core by this reality that as you see Jesus looking over the city, there is no sense of, I told you so. There's no sense of, it serves you right. But rather, Jesus, the embodiment of God, the Word made flesh is brought to tears. Can I tell you something today? Um, God is not immune to tears. You see, sometimes we think that when we're struggling or when we're walking in ways that we shouldn't or we're doing things that just aren't in line with God's way or like we have circumstances and maybe they're beyond our control or maybe there's circumstances or lifestyles that are well with our control. How many times do we often just think that God is sort of up there aloof? God is unmovable and we apply that to emotions, right? And we say, oh, God is not moved by this situation. Can I tell you? that Jesus, as the picture of God, is here in tears over this city that has rejected peace. It's a powerful picture. One theologian, which is a like incognito way of saying N.T. Wright, um, <laughs> says this. <laughs> 
Those tears are not just, like I was thinking, should I say N.T. Wright again? Because it's just like almost every week. He says this, those tears are not just human reaction to a particularly sad and frustrating situation. They are the tears of the God of love. Pretty powerful stuff. And so as he sees people refusing to walk in the way of peace, He's brought to tears and articulates the outcome and with very judgment kind of language of 40, in verses 43 and 44. This is what happens when we reject the way of peace. Because judgment is not God sort of taking an action against someone, but maybe judgment is, is God allowing sin to run its course. And so then we, so we have this, this whole scene of tears and it's powerful on its own and, it, and it's, it, it's kind of this beautiful picture that reveals to us the nature of who God is. God is not immune to tears and there can be like all these kind of beautiful truths and then, then we come to the temple and it just looks like Jesus is angry, right? I mean, when it comes to the temple, Jesus comes in, he appears angry, he's cleaning them out, which by the way, Luke provides the least amount of details all the other gospel writers are like, then Jesus fashioned a whip and he's cracking it in the temple and they give us a lot more detail of what this scenario looked like. Uh, but Luke is just kind of like, and then Jesus said this, right? He doesn't share a lot of the details. Uh, but, but still, you kind of get this sense of Jesus is angry and you're like, how did his sadness move to anger? Uh, is Jesus, was Jesus like an Enneagram 9 who didn't want any conflict but then blew his top, Right? Uh, Enneagram, anybody? I'll for sure get an amen there. But so, so it's kind of like, what is he angry about, right? What is Jesus so angry about? Well, here's a common misunderstanding. Common misunderstanding about this passage, uh, verses 45 through 48 in particular, is that, that the, this, this is only about commerce on the temple grounds, um, right? And so a lot of times we kind of read this passage and we kind of come to the conclusion, don't sell stuff at church, uh, which then, like, then modern worshipers get really nervous about bookstores and megachurches, right? Um, or this happens every year. Every year in our context, when we do the Advent Conspiracy Gift Fair, where you all make crafts and then we sell them in a gift fair and all the money goes to provide wells in Africa, you know that thing? Every year without fail, someone's like, this is making me nervous, right? People get really nervous about should we be doing this in church because of this very story. Uh, well, I don't think that... Uh, I don't think that that's all that's going on here. Um, buying and selling, actually, buying and selling on temple grounds was necessary for the function of worship. Uh, think about it this way. This is Passover week. In the text, it's Passover week. Uh, and so there are travelers coming into from Jerusalem from, from miles away that are coming to, uh, to Jerusalem for Passover week in order to worship, offer sacrifices. And so this kind of like buying and selling was a necessary function in order for people to worship because if you had traveled with an animal that when you left was pure but then got injured on the way or something were to happen, then you arrive in Jerusalem with an impure animal that you've kind of carried or brought this whole way, right? And, and now this, this animal is no longer worthy of sacrifice. And so, so it was kind of like people were like, well, we'll just buy it when we get there. Uh, you do this with groceries, right? I don't want to pack all my groceries and go. Let's just get there and buy groceries. 
similar thing, right? <laughs> Ish, maybe too far of a leap, but you get the sense. Like, I'm not going to travel with this animal because it might, upon arrival, no longer be proper for sacrifice. And so this, and also I'm coming and I may need to exchange some currency. And so this is a necessary function for worship to happen, this commerce that's happening on the temple grounds. I think you get what I'm saying. So something else is going on in this passage. And it's found in what Jesus says because he's not making these words up. He's borrowing these words from the prophets. And so as he drives, those out, as he drives out those who are selling, he says this, My house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of robbers. It's found in verse 46. And how we understand this is absolutely key. Now, some have said that Jesus calls the temple a den of robbers because the people selling, right, there's this necessary function of commerce on the temple grounds in order to facilitate worship. But some have said that those who are selling are really taking financial advantage of those who have come to offer sacrifices. Now, there is, in fact, little doubt that this is taking place that this is true in some cases. I'm certain that all of those who were selling at the temple weren't there just because they have a heart to facilitate worship, right? They were there with greedy hearts trying to line their pockets, maybe by overcharging for sacrificial animals, maybe skimming a little bit off the top in currency exchanges, those kinds of things. But here's the deal. If we understand it only in that way, that means that the temple was the place where the thieves are doing their robbing. You with me? What that means is that the temple is the location of where the thieves are doing the robbing. But think about this with me. A robber's den is not the place where robbers do the robbing. It's where they go to count and hide their spoils. (laughs) Yeah? Yeah? You with me? So one understanding is this, the temple has become the place where the robbers do the robbing. That's not a robber's den. The robber's den is where robbers go to count their spoils, right? And so here's what Jesus is saying. He's essentially saying this. Jesus is calling the temple a den of robbers is not a prohibition of selling sacrifices, but rather it is a prophetic word and warning to the church, And he's essentially saying this, may the church not be a hiding place for practicing the same old sins of Israel. Remember, he's just come from looking over Jerusalem and with tears sees that this is where this thing is headed since you have rejected the way of peace and you have not recognized the coming of the Messiah, so here the, here's what's inevitable, inevitably going to happen. And immediately following that, he goes into the temple, and he says, don't make the church a hiding place for the same old sins of Israel. Check this out. This will become more, more clear when we look at Jeremiah. Jesus is actually quoting Jeremiah 7, uh, verse 11, but I want to read it in context to kind of give you uh, a sense of what's going on. So when Jesus calls the temple a den of robbers, he's referring to and quoting Jeremiah chapter 7. Let's begin with verse 1. I want to read 11 verses. He says this. This is Jeremiah chapter 7. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house and there proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah, who come to these gates to worship the Lord. 
This is what the Almighty, the God of Israel says, reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place and in the land that I gave to your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal, that's the name of another god, and then follow other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we are safe, safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching declares the Lord. (laughs) The prophet Jeremiah calls on Israel to reform your ways in order to worship in God's house and then explicitly calls out injustice, care for the foreigner, and idolatry. And then he asks this provocative question, has this house, the temple of the Lord, become a den of robbers? The implication is strong. The implication is, has the temple become a place of the tired old sins of injustice, idolatry, selfishness, and violence? Has it become a place where robbers come to hide their sins? Yikes, right? Now here's the deal. As challenging as this is, it also begs the question, And this is the question that I had immediately upon learning this kind of like churn of phrase, that the den of robbers is not where the robbers do the robbing, but the place where robbers go to count their spoils. As soon as I realized that churn of phrase, I had this immediate question. Then what? Only perfect people in the church, I guess, huh? Right? You with me? Yeah, I mean, it begs the question, so is the church to be the place where only perfect people go? No which is where we get the other phrase comes in. This place is to be a place of prayer. Prayer, let's learn something important about judgment and let's learn something important about prayer today. Prayer is not primarily trying to get God to do what you think God ought to do, (laughs) right? That's how we think of prayer. Almost exclusively, we're just trying to get God to do what we think God ought to do. God, if I were in your shoes, here's what I would do, right? But prayer is not that. Prayer is about communion with God, and then through that communion with God, to be formed as his people. So let me me package that together. Prayer is not primarily about getting God to do what you think God ought to do. Prayer is about communion with God to be formed as his people. Yeah? Yeah? And so so prayer is not just sort of like a a laundry list or a grocery list of requests, but prayer has this formative power, this formative act in our life, that the Spirit of God is active in our hearts and in our lives as we commune with God. 
And so what Jesus says, in fact, when Jesus says that this temple is to be a house of prayer, he's actually alluding to and quoting another prophet. So when he says, this is to be a house of prayer and you've made it into a den of robbers, he's taking a phrase from Isaiah and a phrase from Jeremiah and smashing them together for a prophetic word. You with me? And here's what Isaiah says. It's Isaiah 56. I won't read it, but rather I'll tell you about it. In this passage, in Isaiah 56, it's a passage that anticipates the day when salvation will come, when God's deliverance will be revealed and forgiveness will be offered. So this house of prayer is connected to deliverance and forgiveness and salvation. And so instead of being a so here's so here's essentially what's going on. Jesus is saying instead of being a place where we parade the same old sins of selfishness, greed, injustice, idolatry, violence, it is to be a place where we humbly seek God so that we can be formed in the ways of justice, service, humility, forgiveness, and love. Oh, that's good. If it was just this shouldn't be a place for all that stuff, I would say, I think I'm disqualified. And I might be prepared to disqualify some of y'all. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? But, but, so, so there's, but, but you have to put the two together. You have to put, yes, there's a sense in which what is the church, the temple supposed to be? Is it a place where we parade around the same old sins or is it a place where with humility we seek to be formed in the ways of God? It isn't about having perfect people. It's about the church being a place of seeking God with humility. And I think that phrase, with humility, is so important. Sometimes we come ready to seek God, thinking that we know everything about God, that we have all the answers, that we have this, like all the right doctrines perfectly lined up, and, and, and we just... We understand all there is to know. <laughs> but if we come seeking God with humility, that humble spirit begins to allow my spirit to commune with the Spirit of God and begin to form me and shape me in ways of justice, service, forgiveness, and love. Now, you know as well as I do that the church isn't a building. Um, but part of the wisdom of having a place set aside to worship is that it becomes a place where we can humbly seek God together. Um, and we don't have a cathedral here, right? Like Amy says, what do you want to do on vacation? And I'm like, go to Europe and look at churches. <laughs> and she's like, oh, <laughs> right? And so, like, I love sort of the beauty of historic churches. And we don't have a cathedral here, but here's the thing. I think we do have a pretty nice space to encounter God week after week. Right? That there is this sense in which this place is set aside for the people of God to come humbly, seeking, yearning, longing for God, that this place might become a place of prayer 
where we would commune with God and be formed in the ways of God. And, and so I, I just kind of envisioned that, that there would be a sense in which Christ looks over and, and yes, there are things that we need to fix and there are certainly cause for lament and tears, but, but I would also want there to be a sense in which God looks at this place and begins to say, there is a group of people humbly seeking after me and being formed in the ways of justice, being formed in the ways of peace, being formed in the ways of forgiveness. For these are the things that truly change the world, and these are the things that display the power of God. That's my hope. Because here's the thing. <laughs> yes, Jesus is looking over Jerusalem, and he is in tears, and he pronounces, this is the, where this thing is headed. It's inevitable. If you keep going this way, this is what's going to happen, and in fact, it does. You look at, when you look throughout history, in A.D. 70, Jerusalem is just torn apart. Literally no stone left unturned. Destroyed by its enemies. But here's the thing. The very next verse says that, that Jesus was teaching in the temple every day. Now that may not say a lot to you, but what it says to me is, is this realization Jesus comes in and cleanses the temple, pronounces a prophetic word over the temple, and then the very next day begins to teach there. Here's what this means to me. Jesus has not lost hope. <laughs> and neither should we, right? And neither should we. Jesus has not given up hope. He wants to bring people to repentance. He, wants, he calls us to repentance, and he wants to connect us to his heart. And so the cleansing is connected with the tears. You see? Yes, there are tears and, and a call to repentance and there's that longing, but in the very same fact, Jesus has not lost hope and he is still at work among his people and he is still at work in the world. Do you believe it? And when I say believe, I don't mean do you give intellectual assent to it? Do you like agree with it? I mean, do you trust in it? Do you live into it, right? Which, by the way, is what the Bible means when it says believe. It's not this intellectual exercise. It's, you know, it's, it's placing my life in trustworthy ways to this reality or this truth. That's what believe means in the Scriptures. We've over-intellectualized it, but that's a, that's a sermon for another day. Um, or maybe today, if I just really get going. Um, Jesus hasn't given up hope. He longs for us to be freed from oppression of sin. Because when you walk in the ways of sin, you will eventually face the consequence of those sin, and that's called judgment. Well, I'm, I'm done with this. <laughs> May this place be a place of prayer. And, and by that, I mean, I, I hope it also to be a place where we submit our request to God. But I think more than that, what I also mean is that this would be a place where we humbly seek God and yearn for his kingdom and yearn for the ways of his kingdom. And that humility piece is so important where we just come asking God to receive from him. And I believe that if we'll do that, 
he's faithful to form us and shape us in his ways. Amen? Amen. Well, let me say a word of prayer for us, and then I'll lead us to the table for communion today. Heavenly Father, you are good, and we give you thanks and praise for your goodness, for the things in which you use, primarily, primarily your word, the activity of your spirit to form us and shape us. But I pray, God, that, that we would be a people dedicated to prayer. And that if today, maybe the challenge that we need to take away today is that we would be invited, called into a life of prayer beyond just kind of asking God to do or maybe telling God to do what we think he ought to, but to really use time in prayer as a formative time of communing with you. And so God, I just pray that you would take the proclamation of your word today and that you would solidify it in our hearts. There's probably a thousand implications that, to this passage, to these truths that haven't been explored today, and so the God, we recognize sort of the limited nature of the sermon. And so we pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would begin to do your work in our lives through discussions that might happen in life groups, among friends, around dinner tables. God, we pray that you would take this word and that through your Holy Spirit you would begin to work on, on individuals, uh, on us personally, about ways in which we could live more fully into these truths. So God, help us in all of these ways, we pray. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.